Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Many of you know that in my previous career I was a teacher. When I was trying to get my foot in the door at the high school where I wanted to teach, I spent a month serving as a substitute teacher. My very first day as a substitute teacher, it's a cue up the movie and press play situation. But after like a minute, the video just turns off, goes black. And so I load it back up, start again, video shuts off again. And then a third time, and now the laughter in the classroom is getting louder, I'm starting to sweat. Fortunately, one of the kids in the class attended our church, so she showed pity. She walked to the front of the room holding the remote. I didn't know there was a remote. <laughs> and handed it to me. One of the kids in the back had been pressing power to turn it off repeatedly. <laughs> um, so the lesson that I learned that day and then continued to learn over that month as a substitute is that when you're just the babysitter, it's not the same as when you're the real teacher. In our scripture text today, the Apostle Paul says, hey, you've got a lot of these babysitters, short-term teachers. They play a role for sure, but I've got a different relationship with you guys altogether. Would you look with uh, me at that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4? 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is Bibles and the chair backs in front of you. Use your Bible app. However you want to access that, you'll want to have it in front of you. If you've been with us during this sermon series, you know we're keeping one eye on our core value of healthy relationships as we work our way through this letter called 1 Corinthians. Already in the first few chapters of this letter, we've been able to fruitfully engage with relationship-type questions like, one, how do we relate to those who have allegiances to other tribes or other camps within the church? Two, how do we relate to leaders within the church? And now in today's text, we zoom in on that a little to ask, well, how do we relate to the subset of those leaders who are our spiritual parents? Or maybe approaching it from the opposite end of the relationship, how do we relate to our spiritual children? Quick aside, by the way, um, I love that we're a church that not only says that we're family in Christ, but acts like we're family in Christ. For all practical purposes, my kids are growing up knowing several folks in this church as family, every bit as much as they're biological extended family is family, right? Single folks in our midst aren't second class or playing JV until you get married and have kids. Like you're our sisters, our brothers, our spiritual mothers and fathers. All that to say, we are a church that believes that the Bible teaches that there's a sense in which the church family is the more fundamental unit of family, even over the families that we were raised in. And we're aiming to live that out here. So now, right before this, right before verse 14, where we're gonna pick up today, Paul's words have been pretty biting to the church at Corinth. If you remember from last week, you scan back at those early verses in chapter 4, you see the sarcasm. This is from last week's text, right? Paul's saying to the church at Corinth, who makes you so, so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And he goes down to say, you're already full. You're already rich. You've already begun to reign as kings without us. I wish you did reign so we could also reign with you. It's, it's biting. Uh, and after giving a moment for that sting to penetrate, he's now going to balance that out with a clarification of why he's writing to them in the manner that he's writing to them. And it has everything to do with the fact that he understands himself to be a spiritual father to these Christians whom he dearly loves. 
So look for that as I read verses 14 to 21. That's our text for today. Paul says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love, in the spirit of gentleness? If we're going to put this passage into practice, I think the big idea for us might be, let's cultivate relationships of healthy spiritual parentage. That's our big idea. Let's cultivate relationships of healthy spiritual parentage. So as we're working through this text, this is the sort of relationship I would love for us to have in mind. Uh, either you as the spiritual parent, to someone younger in the faith whom you take under your wing and mentor, or you as the one looking up to a spiritual parent who takes you under their wing and mentors you. Do you have such a relationship in either direction? You're in both directions. If yes, let's filter our existing relationships through this grid given to us in this text today. And if not, let's let the Lord speak to us this morning about how we could initiate such a relationship. Let's dive in. Two key threads that run through this passage. Uh, first is that spiritual parents are eager to relate tenderly, but are prepared to correct firmly. They're eager to relate tenderly, but are prepared to correct firmly. Check it out with me. Like any good father, Paul prefers to relate tenderly to the Corinthians. He doesn't relish administering discipline. Listen, verse 14. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Verse 16, therefore I urge you to imitate me. Verse 21, what do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? You can hear it, right? He, he wants to be tender. Yet a father is not a good father if he's not ready to correct firmly when needed. You remember how he did that in, in the passage right before this one. I showed you those biting words a moment ago. Now there's a group to which he needs to continue to be firm. Verses 18 to 20, he says, now some are arrogant. As though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. It's after that that we get verse 21, right? Where we see that though he'd prefer that his love be manifest in a spirit of gentleness, he's ready, he won't flinch for a second if that same love needs to manifest itself in holding a stick to exercise fatherly discipline. And next week we'll see what he means by that, practically speaking. The bottom line is, there are two ditches, we could say. And Paul is walking the narrow path between both, right? Over here is the ditch where you're too timid to bring firm correction. Too timid to bring firm correction. And by doing so, you enable those you love to continue their self-destructive tendencies. Over here on the other side, though, is the ditch where you love to thunder down threats from the mountaintops. Can't wait for the next confrontation so you can lord your authority over those you lead. Now, the, the way of the spiritual leader 
which is the way of the good parent as well, is to be eager to relate tenderly to those we lead, but to be prepared to correct firmly. Eager to relate tenderly while remaining prepared to correct firmly. Now, you say, I don't know, Pastor. Last week's passage sounded like Paul's very quick to be harsh. Are we sure that he's not in this ditch? Just eager for any confrontation? You say, I mean, I get Paul says, I'm not writing this to shame you. But come on, look what he just said in the verses right before that. This feels like when someone says, hey, no offense, but... Or even better, don't take this the wrong way, but when somebody says don't take this the wrong way or no offense, we know what they mean. They mean I'm acknowledging that I'm about to say something that's going to be extremely hurtful to you, but I don't care. I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway, right? Here's Paul. I'm not writing this to shame you, but go ahead and feel ashamed, right? It kind of feels that way. I mean, check this out. Twice later in this very letter. He admits, yeah, I'm intentionally writing this to shame you. Look at chapter 6. I say this to, if you have such a matter, do you point as your judges, those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Then again in chapter 15, come to your senses, stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Both of these times, Paul's like, hey, make no mistake, it is my active intention to shame you. And I don't know about you, but I kind of appreciate that directness in chapter 6 and 15. For Paul to say, no, yeah, I'm hoping that my words cause you to feel some of the shame that is appropriate for you to feel given your behavior. I appreciate that clarity. So if Paul's not shy about being this direct in chapters 6 and 15, why here in chapter 4, verse 14, is he like, hey, I'm not writing this to shame you? A couple thoughts on that. This might be a confusing question, except we have the person who wrote the literal book on Paul's use of shame here in our midst, Dr. Lau. So I'm going to do my best to concisely summarize pages and pages of Dr. Lau's brilliant analysis here in just two points. First, Paul is truly, truly is eager to be tender, right? As evidenced by the fact that the Corinthians themselves don't perceive him to be quick to the shame trigger. In fact, one of the main criticisms levied by his opponents in First and Second Corinthians seems to have been, hey, Paul's a softy, he's not going to do anything. So given that that's the perception of Paul held even by his opponents, we should then read Paul's harsh words in light of the fact that Corinthians knew he had a strong inclination toward gentleness. Right? But then, secondly, there's shame and there's shame. Okay? Dr. Lau has masterfully shown that there's a sort of shaming that the Greek philosophers engaged in that Paul is eager to distance himself from. Like, whoa, 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 guys, I'm not doing that to you. I'm not shaming you in that way. But there's another sort of shaming that any good parent does in, out of love for their child. And Paul is more than willing to use that sort of constructive shame as a tool for people's good. What's the difference between the two? Maybe a chart will help. And Dr. Lau can tell me if I should have ran this by him first. But this is trying to synthesize his work on this. Destructive shame versus constructive shame. The destructive short, sort that Paul's like, no, I don't do that. It tears down. It is practiced by the sophists, these wandering Greek philosophers that would go from town to town. It was combative, intended to humiliate the other person. And it exalts self at the expense of others. Paul says, That's, that kind of shaming I want nothing to do with. Right? However, there's another sort of shame that builds up. There's another sort of shame that's used by a loving father, according to how Paul talks about it. Right? 
There's another sort of shame that challenges another person or a group of people to see their error in light of the cross. And that serves a higher goal of admonition, which is good for the person hearing it. Um, In other words, this shame here is sometimes appropriate to use when it's like, okay, guys, you're deeply enough entrenched in this self-destruction that you need more than just a logical argument to get you to snap out of it. I need to attempt here to move you to feel some of the appropriate shame that you should be feeling as a result of your shameful actions. Now, for some of you, maybe, it doesn't matter how much we nuance or clarify the difference between destructive shame and constructive shame. You can't believe that you are sitting in a church this morning that is with a straight face advocating shame right now. You're like, I've spent lots of money in therapy to heal from the shaming I experienced as a kid. Don't make excuses for people who use shame. A few thoughts in response to that. Um, First, it's only very recently that shame has become a four-letter word. Brene Brown and others who say so many good and helpful things have been a big part of that shift, but they're not always interested in nuancing what they mean by shame and by differentiating it from what's healthy. They seem generally happy to say that shame is bad, period. Besides other problems that causes, though, it turns out to be a pretty ethnocentric approach. Shame continues to be foundational to parenting in so many parts of the world, from Ireland to China, right, and always has been. So for us individualistic Westerners to come along and say, hey, the foundation of the, the foundational basis of your parenting is fundamentally harmful, but don't worry, we white people will point you in the right direction. I'm not sure that's really the way we want to go. Better to distinguish between helpful and unhelpful shame, right? as Dr. Lau has shown the New Testament itself does. And with the benefit of this important distinction, we're able to say, speaking of the a harmful sort of shame, we can say, yes, those were harmful messages that you picked up as a kid. You have internalized lies that should never have been ingrained in you. That's not who you are. Be free from the shame and come out from into the light. We can say that wholeheartedly, but we also retain the ability to say to our children and to our spiritual children things like, <clears throat> for example, uh, I had to say this in one of my classes once, hey, when you and your friends were laughing at the kid with the disability, but then you looked up and you saw me looking at you and you saw the look in my eyes, it's appropriate that you felt shame in that moment. Your actions in that moment were shameful and brought shame on your family, more importantly on Christ as a Christian. So the fact that you felt shame is a good sign that your heart and your mind and conscience are still operating correctly. See? That's a good shame that serves a purpose, moving us toward repentance. Once again, I can't commend highly enough. Read the book. It's much better than what I just said. Then schedule lunch with Dr. Loud. Ask him your questions about it. Um, Privileged to get to attend church with Dr. Loud. Bottom line, Paul isn't using shaming and warning here as if they're like polar opposites. This Greek construction can sometimes be used to mean something like this. I'm not writing this primarily to shame you but more so to warn you as my dear children, right? Like if they felt shame when they read those words right above this a few verses ago, that's probably good and appropriate. Their boasting had been shameful. 
But Paul's clarifying, I'm not sitting here eagerly waiting for the next opportunity to knock you down for the sake of knocking you down. That doesn't make me feel good to write what I just wrote to you. My intent in all this that I'm writing to you, including the parts that make you feel shame, is to warn you, to admonish you, to build you up. And maybe before we charge on, it's worth taking a moment to reflect on those relationships in which we have spiritual influence. Maybe our own kids, maybe others that we mentor or disciple. In that capacity that we have as mentors, which of these ditches are we in danger of tipping into? Think about yourself. Do we shy away from confrontation, even though we sense it's needed? Always keeping the rod of correction stowed away, metaphorically speaking. If so, it's possible that we've failed to love as we ought to. The Corinthians weren't going to change course at this point in response to a gentle nudge. Some of their unhealthy patterns were too entrenched. Paul assessed the situation, therefore doesn't write to Corinth with the warm tone with which he writes to the church at Philippi down the road. He loves the Corinthians just like he loves the Philippians. But it's because he loves the Corinthians that he feels compelled to say in no uncertain terms, if you don't deal with this cancer in your midst, I'm going to come there and deal with it myself. And before you turn to each other and smirk as if those are just words, watch what happens when I show up in person, verses 18 to 20. Then we'll find out who's all talk and who has the power of the kingdom of God to actually bring things to pass. Are you willing? I'm not saying eager. No, we don't want to be eager. But are you willing to take on that tone when needed for those in your life who look up to you? But on the flip side, with respect to the opposite ditch, Are we too eager to firmly correct? Are you out there looking for a battle to fight? A slacker to rebuke? Does it get your blood pumping? The thought of thundering down a word of correction from a pedestal of authority. If so, don't imagine yourself to be a modern day Apostle Paul. Though Paul was willing to speak this way, He wasn't eager to speak this way. He greatly preferred that the Corinthians respond to this warning by getting their house in order so he can come and be like a nursing mother to them again. God will show us when we need to bring out the rod. Let's be eager to be gentle to those under our care. Second and final main point is spiritual parents consistently practice what they preach in view of those who will imitate them. Spiritual parents consistently practice what they preach in view of those who will imitate them. I'm thinking of verses 16 and 17 here. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. You see this word, therefore, in verse 16. When we see that, we always ask, what's it there for? And in this case, it's a bridge reminding us that Paul sees spiritual parentage and imitation as necessarily connected to one another, going hand in hand. Why? Because in this world that they're living in, to be a son was to be like one's father, to act like one's father. That's the backdrop, as you may remember, for some of Jesus' greatest showdowns, like in John 8, when he and the Pharisees are arguing over who the Pharisee's father is. You remember this? The Pharisees say, Abraham's our father. Jesus says, now, nah, if Abraham was your father, you'd act like Abraham. Try again. And they say, well, God's our father. And Jesus says, nope, if God was your father, you'd love me because God loves me. Let me make it plain for you. Your father is the devil, as evidenced by the fact that you're imitating him. 
The underlying logic under that whole conversation on both sides is sons imitate their fathers. That's what it is to be someone's son, right? So in verse 16, that's why Paul here is like, hey, if I'm your spiritual father, therefore imitate me. Do what I do. In chapter 11, he's going to say it again. Follow me like I follow Christ. The Christian-y word for this is discipleship. All that means is that God has designed the Christian life in such, to work in such a way that ordinarily we grow in Christ-likeness as we watch someone else live and we imitate them. And should their words play into that as they share with us doctrines and things about the Bible? I'm not saying they don't, but think about the major growth moments of your Christian journey. How many of them are because you heard an amazing sermon and you can still recount the pastor's outline of his three main points in the passage? On the flip side, how many of them are because you saw another Christian living a certain way and you said, well, I want to be that way too. This is part of the genius of God coming in the flesh as a Jewish man who would grow up to be a Jewish rabbi. Right? The Jewish rabbinical system wasn't set up in such a way that the disciples' goal was to learn what the rabbi knew. It was set up in such a way that every disciple's goal was to become who his rabbi was. And so now as we disciple others and as we get discipled by others, that's the core of the relationship. It's not an information dump from one human brain to another. What it is is, hey, you're not perfect, but insofar as your life looks like Jesus' life, I want to become like you. In other words, there are words and actions involved, teaching and training. Here's the teaching. Verse 17, just as I teach everywhere in every church, but back a verse, here's the modeling. I urge you to imitate me. Timothy will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus. It's both and, right? And in our corner of the Christian landscape here at North Sub and in our denomination, we may be stronger on the teaching side of this, delivering content, than we have been on the training end of it, saying, here, take my hand and I'll walk you where you want to go in Christ, historically speaking anyway. But in the last couple of years at North Sub, we've seen some growth on the training side, some amazing relationships taking root that are both teaching and training, right? and we'll hear from one of those in just a little bit. It shouldn't be missed, though, that those relationships require proximity, tangible human connection. You can't imitate somebody you never see. For that matter, you can't imitate somebody you only see when he's up in the pulpit preaching. How do I imitate him when I'm in a disagreement with my spouse or when I'm frustrated with my kids or when my boss is asking me to do something that's ethically gray. Right? I've never seen the guy do anything but preach. How do I know? And the Corinthians were going to have a hard time imitating Paul while he was away from them. Paul knew that. That's not an ideal discipleship situation, which is why it hasn't been the norm in church history to disciple from afar. And that's why Paul does the best he can do by sending Timothy. Verse 17, this is why I've sent Timothy to you, right? He said, here's a guy who lives like I live, Timothy does, right? Here's a guy who can remind you of what I teach. Listen to Timothy and watch Timothy, and because Timothy's imitating me, watching him will help you imitate me, Paul says, right? And this importance of physical proximity should give us pause at least, to, uh, give pause at least to those who have imagined that they're being discipled by their favorite YouTube personality, or by a celebrity pastor in another state. Like, I'm discipled by him, his perspective is so wise. I'm discipled by her, she just seems to speak to right where I'm at. Well, have you seen them live their life? Have you watched them interact with their family, heard the language they use behind closed doors when they're comfortable? 
How can we imitate somebody we have no human connection with? That's why I framed this uh, second point, I said at the end, in view of those who will imitate them. What I meant by that is it's so important for this to be taking place person to person. As evidenced by the fact that when Paul recognizes it can't be person to person at the moment, he sends Timothy to make it person to person. That's also why it's in our elders' job description here at Northsub that we each open up our homes to folks in the congregation on a regular basis. None of us individually can disciple everybody, but as a team, we can disciple some who disciple others, such that everybody ends up getting discipled. But that means that at least some people have to see us on more than just Sunday mornings, have to see what books are on our shelves, how we engage with our families, how we respond to a hiccup in plans, the lived situations that make up the bread and butter of following Jesus. If we have the Holy Spirit and a Bible, and have been walking with the Lord for any length of time, we should be able to say to somebody younger in the faith, hey, come on, imitate me. Not because I'm perfect, I'm not. Actually, part of what I hope you'll imitate is how I respond when I realize I've blown it. But I'm trying to live my life in the shape of the cross. I'd love to bring you along with me in that. Are you in a relationship like that? Not just are you teaching a Bible study right now, but... I'm asking, is there anybody who has a front seat, front row seat, to watch you live out what you teach? If not, it's time to invite somebody into that. You can't control whether they take you up on the offer or not, but making disciples is what our Lord left us here to do. And so our big idea today, once again, is let's cultivate relationships of healthy spiritual parentage. Let's cultivate those sorts of relationships. I told you about being pranked on my first day as a sub. When I became a full-time teacher after that, kids didn't try to pull that stuff on me so often anymore. There was an authority I had now, not not because of my my title somewhat, but also because of my longer-term investment in them and care for them. Even so, I knew there were things that my students needed to hear that only their parent was going to be able to say to them. Because while a teacher is different from a substitute, there's nothing like a parent. And that's true in the spiritual community as well, in the family of faith. You may jump in the first or third grade classroom as a substitute teacher one week to help out Miss Beth, and that work is so appreciated, critically important. You notice here, Paul's by no means diminishing the important work of the tutor, or the babysitter, or the instructor. But there's a richer relationship available that none of us can be engaged in with everybody, but that most of us should be engaged in with somebody. And that's the fatherly or motherly relationship that involves one believer intentionally and consistently coming alongside another over a long-term period to help them follow Jesus, becoming more like him. Yes, you're teaching them, but over the longer term, over the long term, they're actually getting to see you live it out too in your good times and in your hard times such that what you've taught them now seems plausible because they've seen it. This life with Jesus really actually may be something attainable. For me, they start thinking to themselves. Some here know this morning that you need that person right now who's going to take you under their wing. I want to encourage you, be brave and initiate that. The conversation could just look like this. Hey, I respect you. I would love for you to help me out in any way that you can to become like Jesus in the ways that I can see that you're like Jesus. Now we say to ourselves, well, they're too busy. I could never ask them that, right? Maybe they are, but let them decide that. Think about this. 
they got to do laundry and cook dinner, right? So ask if you can come over and talk to them while you fold their laundry and help them cook. They got to go grocery shopping. Ask if you can walk with them and ask them questions next time they grocery shop. You never know until you ask. Others here this morning know it's time for you to offer that support to someone younger in the faith or who hasn't yet begun their journey with Christ. Same exhortation. Be brave and initiate that. Maybe that conversation goes, hey, I admire you. If you're ever up for it, I'd love to come alongside you to help you grow in your faith because I see so much in you that I love. And we may say, well, who am I to do that, right? But, but if you have the Holy Spirit and the Bible, this is what we've been called to do, right? The Lord will give us what we need as we engage in that work. And some of that will be supplied as we church leaders come alongside you to equip you to get started. We're so happy to do that. One last word to the person who hasn't yet started that walk with Jesus. There's somebody here who would love to come alongside you in that journey as well and to show you the way. I want to encourage you, talk to that person who invited you this morning, or talk to me, or talk to somebody with a blue lanyard around their neck, and we'll get you connected with somebody who's a good fit for you. But the reason to take that initiative is not, not just to become a better person. That's not what we've been talking about this morning. The reason to do that is because the maker and sustainer of the universe loved you so much that he put on flesh to die for you. And then the God-man, Jesus Christ, he, he was powerfully raised from the dead after that to conquer once and for all the sin and the death that have had a hold on you. That power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, is available to you when you take your place in God's kingdom. And that's why walking with Jesus will change your life. Let's pray.